Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 speak about spiritual stability. And uh, today we're going to talk about spiritual stability in, with joy in the Lord. The necessity, of having, uh, the necessity of having joy in the Lord to maintain your spiritual stability. And so we take Philippians chapter 4, and we begin in verse 1. It says, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of, the li book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that, you, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. So we're talking about the necessity of maintaining a spirit of joy for spiritual stability. And our verse today uh, comes after Paul exhorts the uh, Philippian church to stand fast. He tells them to stand fast, and then he gives them seven ways in the following verses how to do that. And so we saw that last week there was this idea of cultivating, uh, cultivating harmony in church fellowship, the necessity of maintaining a culture of harmony uh, to strengthen spiritual stability. So I showed you last week that the lack of peace and, and harmony are just as dangerous as false teaching and false doctrine. Well, today we move on to a very positive message, and that is about rejoicing and rejoicing in the Lord. Now, remember when this text is written that Paul is in prison. He is in chains, and the church is having a problem with false teaching. That's what chapter 3 of Philippians is all about. And Paul tells the believers that they're to walk about rejoicing in the Lord. To walk about rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, they're to rejoice in the Lord always, no matter the circumstances. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now the verse expresses truly the theme of the book, the theme of Philippians, that believers are to rejoice in the Lord always. Now I want you to understand something. Joy is vitally important. It is a vital factor a life-giving factor in believer spiritual stability that Paul repeats his command with emphasis. Again, I say, rejoice. This repetition presupposes the reality that it's not easy to be joyful because the Philippians needed to rise above their circumstance. 
they were in a they were in a tough spot and it is true some wrongly identify joy as a purely human emotion and find and find Paul's twice repeated command to rejoice rather puzzling but how they ask how they ask rather can people be commanded to produce an emotion but i want you to write down this truth joy is not a feeling joy is not a feeling it is a deep down confidence. It is a deep down confidence that God is control of everything, in control of everything for the believer's good and God's own glory. And all of this is, and, and all is well no matter what the circumstances may be. And so the, the Greek word for rejoice is in the present imperative. He tells them, he commands them to do it in their present circumstance calling believers to the continual, habitual practice of rejoicing. Neither Paul's imprisonment nor the Philippians' trials should eclipse their joy, their deep-seated confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and His glory. It is true that believers can often find reasons to rejoice in their specific circumstances, and certainly, however, the general wickedness and sorrow and misery and death of the world do not seem to evoke joy. In fact, it seems to evoke a whole lot of other things. And nor are people a reliable source of joy since they can change, they can hurt you, they can disappoint you. But here's a fact. The only sure, reliable, unwavering, unchanging source of joy is God. That's the only source of God, only source of joy that is sure and reliable, unwavering and unchanging. And now that Paul is commands the believers to rejoice in the Lord, the paraphrase, in the Lord, introduces an important principle. For you see, spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. And that's what this whole study is about. Remember, he told them in chapter 4, right here, he says of, of these two women, I implore you, Odia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my beloved, long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. No one has stated this truth more clearly than the great uh, biblical author, uh, teacher, A.W. Tozer. In his classic book, The Attributes of God, about the attributes of God, known as the knowledge of the holy, I want to read to you what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no person has ever risen above its religion and no man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than the idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most pretentious fact, I'm sorry, portentous fact, about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to be a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is 
true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about Him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Do you understand what he's talking about? He says what you, how you view and how you think of God is the most important thing to do with how you relate to joy and spiritual stability, what you think personally about God. And so there's three main points I want to give you from our text today. And here is the first one. Knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. Knowledge of God is the key to, with, to rejoicing. Those who know the great truths about God find it easy to rejoice. And yet those with little knowledge of Him find it indeed extremely difficult to result, to rejoice. And so learn of God's goodness. That's the first thing I would tell you immediately, is you must learn of God's goodness. God gave the Psalms to Israel in poetic form so they could be easily memorized and set to music. Recall the first three books of the book of Psalms. The first three verses of the book of Psalms promise blessing to those who meditate on the Scripture. Listen as I read Psalm 1, 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but is delight is in the law of the Lord and His law, and in His law He meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever He does He prospers. Now here's an application from that. The knowledge of God and the repeated recitation and singing of His nature and attributes, out of that the believer's joy flows. That's what the Bible says. So deep was the Apostle's knowledge of God's character and purpose that even suffering for Jesus Christ was a cause of joy, he says in Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Moses' father-in-law Jethro said, rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of Egypt, as we read in Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy 26. Moreover, after the dedication at the temple, Solomon said sent, he sent the people to their tents rejoicing and happy of heart because of the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and to Solomon and to his people. So knowledge of the, of, of the Lord, knowledge of God, Lee, is a key to rejoicing. And specifically, you need to learn of, the, of God's goodness, but you need to also learn of God's redemption. Not only His goodness, but His redemption. Believers rejoice in the contemplation of God's redemption. For example, in 1 Samuel 2 verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. In Psalm 13, verse 5, David confidently asserted, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice 
in your salvation. And he says this over and over again in the Psalms. In Psalm 71, 23, the psalmist said, My lips shall shout joy when I sing praise to you and my soul which you have redeemed. So we need to learn of the goodness of God. We need to learn of God's redemption and we need to learn of God's supply. To learn of God's supply, yet another reason for a believer to rejoice is that God has promised to supply all of the believer's needs. Paul reminded the Philippians in in Philippians 4 verse 19, he said, God will supply all your needs according to His riches, glory, and grace in Christ Jesus. In Psalm 84 verse 11, the Old Testament counterpart to that promise is this, as the psalmist wrote, For the Lord God is the sun and the shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. We read even on the Sermon on the Mount by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 6, 28 through 33. He says, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field, they do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself as one of these. But God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace. Will He not yet more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Brothers and sisters, Paul rejoiced because of the privilege of serving God. To Timothy he wrote, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because He has considered me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And then he said, when God's truth was proclaimed, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, he says in Philippians 1.18. Again, that concept of rejoicing. Paul's declaration to the Philippians earlier in this epistle is for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Uh, in in uh, verse one or chapter one verse twenty one reveals that even the prospects of death could not quench the joy that the apostle Paul had, and thus the confidence that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Romans eight thirty eight through thirty nine. This produces a deep-seated joy and consequently spiritual stability. Did you know that joy is an important theme both in Philippians and in the rest of the New Testament where it appears as a noun and a verb and in verb form approximately 150 times? In the Philippian letter alone, Paul says in chapter 1 verse 4, I always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. As we read a moment ago in verse 18 of chapter 1, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. In chapter 1, verse 25, he's convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue, and you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on this purpose. In chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. 
you know I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In chapter 2, 28 and 29, he says, Therefore I have sent him, Timothy, all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him with the joy of the Lord, with all joy, and hold people like him in high regard. In chapter 4, verse 1, we've already read it. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown stand firm in the faith. In chapter 4, verse 4, our verse today, Rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say rejoice. And then in verse 10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord great, greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. And so what have we learned thus far we have simply learned this. Knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. The knowledge of God, or not the knowledge, but knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. Because as we've noticed very clearly of the necessity of maintaining a spirit of joy for spiritual stability, knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. We need to learn of God's goodness. We need to learn of God's redemption. And we need to learn of God's supply. But number two, you can guard yourself by rejoicing in the Lord. You can guard yourself by rejoicing in the Lord. Guard yourself by rejoicing in the Lord. Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 1, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, but it is a safeguard for you. You see, the same word is used right here. Rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you. So not only is knowledge a key to rejoicing, but you guard yourself by rejoicing in the Lord. This chapter gives us some great principles that govern Paul's life. Indeed, the subject of the chapter could be pressing on, the pressing on of the Christian believer the pressing on of the Christian believer. He speaks of what Christian believers must do as he presses on for Christ. They need to guard themselves. Now this is in chapter 3, just as in a summary. He says, by rejoicing in the Lord, by heeding what is written in the Scripture. In verse 2, by watching out for false teachers and by knowing that you are the true spiritual circumcision, you are indeed true believers. That's verse 3. He just says that in the first three verses of chapter 3. It is that very first part I'd like to spend a moment on regarding our subject. And I'd have you write this down. Write this down. A person who is always rejoicing in the Lord will not go astray. A person who is always rejoicing in the Lord will not go astray. As the believer walks through life, two things are always going to confront him. You will always be confronted by trials and false teaching. By trials and false teachings, there is nothing that can stop this except that you be removed from this world and enter the heavenly realm. Believers will always be, be confronted by trials and false teaching. Regarding the trials of life, no matter where the believer goes, the trial of life, both minor and major, will confront him. This is a reality. He has to stand face to face with the awful trials of life, including enticing temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, greed, selfishness, arguments, and division. 
inhumane behavior, criminal acts, death, accidents, disease, and the list could go on and on and on. No person escapes the trials of life, not if he walks upon this earth. No one will escape them. He is confronted with the awful reality of trials every day in his life. But not only are there trials of life, but there are the false teachings that you will experience in this life as well. Just as with the trial of life, no matter where he walks, the false teachers and the false teaching of those false teachers will confront the believer. No matter which way he turns, he is confronted with different ideas about how to handle life and its great trials. There are those who, for example, promote hedonism. Hedonism is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They pursue pleasure at all costs. Uh, There are those who practice asceticism. Asceticism, it's the complete opposite. Get rid of worldly pleasures and focus on thinking, particularly for religious or spiritual purpose. Practice extreme self-denial and austerity. Then there is nihilism or nihilism, N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. Nihilism is reject all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. Then there is also the idea which naturally follows would be the idea of pessimism. The teachings of pessimism expect the worst possible outcome. Generally everything is bad and tends to become worse. Evil will eventually overcome the good. After all, the glass is only half empty anyway. Then there is the teachings of skepticism. Skepticism is the generally a questioning attitude or doubt towards one or more putative instances of knowledge which are asserted to the mere belief or dogma. Formerly, skepticism is a topic of interest in philosophy, particularly epistemology. And so you have the skeptics. They don't believe anything. There's the teaching of stoicism. Discipline the control and control yourself. Take care of your body and your mind. Don't give in to the lusts and the passions of this life. You need to have this idea of imperturbability, imperturbability, where you cannot be perturbed. Uh, You may uh, occasionally uh, do what brings pleasure, but in the most, you do not do anything to abuse the mind or or abuse the body. It's a waste. There's moderationism, which simply says, don't go overboard, enjoy life, join in, do what you want but do it within reason. Then there's mysticism. This is particularly predominant in the church. Uh, Mysticism is the teaching that religion is the answer to both life and death. Join a religious body, undergo its religion, its rituals, adopt its beliefs, live the best you can. This will give you a strong self-image and confidence that God will accept you. Then you have, of course, the terrible uh, uh, predominant teaching that we live in today known as postmodernism, which simply is there is no absolute truth, that all things must be viewed in relation to critical theory. Nothing is true until it is proven to be a standard that cannot be true. Nothing is proven. Nothing can be true until it is proven to be true against an untrue standard. And truth is in the eye of the beholder. And one I didn't write down, but I, I thought of as I was coming in, the opposite to postmodernism is of obviously empiricism. 
Empiricism simply says, if I cannot prove it, I cannot believe it, and that completely negates faith. All of these, all of these things I've shared with you ultimately negate faith. And the Bible says in Hebrews 11.6, it's impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. But these are not only false teachings to live by, but they're false philosophies. They're, they're things that uh, do not necessarily add value uh, to those of us that are on the, on the upward way, those of us that are followers of Christ. And so uh, you have these false teachings, and you'll notice I didn't even get into the false teachings and the heresies of the church that are evident today. These, are, these that I have shared with you are more likely to be experienced by you out there in the life where you live. So these are false teachers, teachings that influence the believer. And it was Paul's subject in chapter 3 to the Philippians, but it was also in his other, other writings. And just briefly, I want you to understand something. Paul was very, very serious about, about sound doctrine, sound instruction, sound teaching. He said to uh, Timothy and to Titus, he says, Say there in Ephesus that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They'll follow false teachings and false doctrines. He says, Be diligent in the matters and give yourself wholly to them so that everyone can see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine. Watch your life and doctrine. He says uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to sound instruction of the Lord and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. I want you to write something. I, I discovered this the other day in studying and made this conclusion. A conceited person is incapable of learning. A person who is conceited is incapable of learning. I have not only met these folks in the real world, but I have met them in the church. They cannot learn anything. They are so drunk on their own conceit. And so what does he say here? This is a biblical precept. And to the godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He, is as un his, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about the word that result in envy, strife, malice, talk, evil suspicion, and constant friction between men of corrupt minds and so forth and so on. He's describing somebody who's conceited. Conceited people can't learn. They cannot learn. And what you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with the faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that's in you that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives on you, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He talks about in 2 Timothy preaching the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Well, I tell you, if that time hadn't come at that point, it has certainly come today. It has certainly come today. It says in here in Titus that elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught and that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, sound in doctrine, and pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. And finally, he says, What you must teach 
what is in, a, in accord with sound doctrine. I do not understand truly in, 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 the, in, the, in my Christian upbringing the, the constant beratement and refusal to adhere to, to learn, and to obey sound doctrine. And you hear it like this, you say, well, these are doctrines of men. No, they're the doctrines of God. Now, we're talking about how you can guard yourself by rejoicing. You can guard yourself from trials of life and rejoicing, and you can guard yourself from false teaching by rejoicing in the Lord. But there's one other thing I want you to understand. Number three, rejoicing marks the true believer. Rejoicing marks the true believer. Here in chapter 3, verse 1, which says, again, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then here in verse 4, chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And again down here, verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Rejoicing marks the true believer. Paul connects rejoicing to a relationship commanding believers to rejoice in the Lord. He connects rejoicing to a relationship. I want you to write that down. Rejoicing has something to do with a relationship. It's connected to the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. The sphere in which joy exists is in the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy of which Paul writes is not the same as happiness. A word related to the term happenstance, the feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events. That's not what he's talking about. We're talking about this concept of this deep-seated confidence that rests deep down inside of the believer. He, he knows that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and for God's own glory. And so, in fact, joy persists in the face of weakness and in pain and suffering, even death, as it says over here in James. I want to look at it very quickly. James chapter 1, verse 2. James the writer says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There you go again. You see how rejoicing is a guard against uh, these trials. Of false these trials and of false teachings. Here James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Joy persists in the face of weakness, of pain, of suffering, even in death. Biblical joy produces a deep confidence in the future that is based on trust in God's purpose and His power. Again, this comes from knowledge of God. It results in the absence of any ultimate fear since the relationship on which it's based is eternal and unshakable. There is nothing that can shake it. It's based upon God, and God cannot be moved. God cannot be changed. Nor is it humanly produced emotion. It, it doesn't come from the human. It's not produced in us. That Paul commands, it shows that rejoicing is an act of the will in choosing to obey God. It's an act of the will. 
The result is a supernaturally produced emotion that emotion that is the result of one of the results of fruit of walking in the Spirit that's, that's in Galatians 5.22. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, goodness. Thus rejoicing, brothers and sisters, marks the true believer. We live, I, I'm afraid, in a time where people think the more they complain with, righteous, with a so-called righteous indignation or a, a, a false virtue signaling that they're truly followers of the way. That's not what the Bible teaches. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Paul said it. That settles it. So in conclusion, the point is this. The believer today as of old is bombarded by both trials and false teachings every day of his life. He must therefore guard himself. And the first guard is to rejoice in the Lord. He must guard himself. And the first guard is to rejoice in the Lord. If he walks throughout the day rejoicing in the Lord, his mind is upon the Lord. He rejoices over what Christ has done for him. He rejoices over the Lord justifying him adopting Him, sanctifying Him, reconciling Him, loving Him, delivering Him, guiding and directing Him, securing righteousness for Him, dying for Him, bearing His condemnation and judgment, arising for Him, giving Him new life, looking after Him, giving Him the privilege of knowing God, giving Him victory over sin, giving Him an eternal hope, and the glorious confidence of eternal life. You know what we call that? Salvation. He rejoices over God saving him. Indeed, the believer just walks about joying and rejoicing all that the Lord has done and is doing for him. And this is essential if the believer is to guard himself against the onslaught of trials and false teaching in his life. Because the believer is to press on in his Christian life, he must walk about rejoicing in the Lord. So knowing God is the key to rejoicing. Rejoicing is a guard against trials and false teaching. And as we just saw here, as we just saw here in this last point, it is truly the mark of the true believer. It's truly the mark, a mark, of the true believer. So here's what I want you to take away. The greatest thing that rejoicing does is this. It places and keeps a person in the presence of Christ. It places and keeps a person in the presence of Christ. And no matter what confronts the believer, no matter how terrible the trial, he knows that he is being looked after by Jesus Christ, the Lord. He walks rejoicing in the Lord. He rejoices no matter what confronts him. We have been talking about our spiritual stability and the necessity of joy, of maintaining a spirit of joy for spiritual 
necessity for spiritual stability. We have truly seen the necessity of maintaining a spirit of joy. It is essential if you wish to have spiritual stability in your life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it speaks to us these wonderful truths. We thank you for so much of Scripture today being used to build the case that we're to rejoice in you and to rejoice in you always. We thank you that you have given us the word that we may have knowledge of you, knowing you causes us to rejoice. We thank you, Lord, that because in knowing you, rejoicing in you helps us guard against the unstable times that we live in that are filled with trials and false teaching. And we are grateful to you, God Almighty, because our rejoicing is a mark of our redemption. It is a mark that we truly belong to the Lord. It is my prayer that, that Father, those who are in Christ and have lost their way perhaps because they have stopped, to re they have stopped rejoicing. There was a time that they did, but instead they are sitting at the complaint window of life. I pray, Father, even now you would bring in to them a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and the restoration of their rejoicing. Father, for those who do not know Christ, may they hear the Word of God. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And draw, we pray, God, them to yourself, the whosoever that will believe. We ask, Father, that you would Remind us always of this necessity of maintaining a spirit of joy for, this, for spiritual stability. We ask this believing in the precious name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up His face upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things for Christ Jesus. Amen.